Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the gospel of John, John chapter 10, John chapter 10. We are about halfway through the gospel of John, um, as far as the text and the book is concerned, we're about halfway through and we are at uh, the climax of a very large section. I just want to kind of summarize where we've been starting in chapter seven. Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, or the the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, This would happen late summer, early fall. Uh, In chapter 7, he claims to be the living water. Come to me, be refreshed, be satisfied. In chapter 8, he's still in Jerusalem, and he claims to be the light of the world. He claims to be God, very God, before Abraham was, I am. These are the things he claims about himself. And and the Jewish people are struggling to make a decision here. They want to kill him. Some want to follow him. Some believe in him. Chapter 9, Jesus is still in Jerusalem as he's leaving the temple. After people have picked up stones to stone him at the end of chapter 8, he sees a man who is born blind. And then all of chapter 9 is that section, the man born blind. That leads us to chapter 10, right after the discourse, the teaching that Jesus gave on the sovereignty of God, even over disability, the good purposes and the glory of God to be put on display. Chapter 10 begins right after that. And chapter 10, verse 22, tells us that it's the feast of the dedication. The feast of dedication would happen late November, early December. So it's been about two to three months From John chapter 7 to John chapter 10, and Jesus has just been in Jerusalem. After this, Jesus is going to leave Jerusalem. He's going to go to Bethany beyond the Jordan, sometimes called Bethabara. He's going to go over there. He's going to see John's disciples, and he's going to speak to them, and they're going to believe in him. And then he's going to go up to Perea and Galilee, and that's Luke chapter 13. And the, the Jews want him dead. They're going to say, go back to Jerusalem. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus is going to say, no, I'm not going now. I will go later. And when I go, I will enter Jerusalem to the cries of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this John chapter 10, this teaching that Jesus gives in Jerusalem is the last time he will be in Jerusalem until he enters again at Palm Sunday. So we are halfway through the book. But we still have about three months of Jesus's earthly ministry. We have three months left, and it's a packed three months, starting in chapter 11 and working its way uh, to the end of the book. John is writing, as these banners say, to prove, to show us that Jesus is who he claims to be. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And he's going to do that yet again for us this morning. And in these verses, Jesus is going to be asked a question. He's going to respond to that question with utter clarity. There's no question what he's saying. And because of that, the Jews are going to pick up stones to stone him yet again for the third time in the Gospel of John. They want him dead. He's going to leave. He's going to maneuver his way out. I think we'll probably look at the maneuver next week. Because we have to spend time before this maneuver that he does. It's an amazing, and we, we need to spend time on the maneuver that he does because it's profound. And he's going to get out of being stoned to death. He's going to go over to the other side of the Jordan and people are going to believe. Um, Jesus is going to do amazing things here. So we have to slow down. We have to listen to him speak. 
And we have to see him in his final hours in Jerusalem before he leaves um, to minister up in Galilee, to hide himself away. He's going to come back to raise Lazarus, but that's only in Bethany. Then he's going to go to Ephraim. Then he's going to spend about a month just going up north around the Sea of Galilee, back down across uh, through Jericho into Jerusalem. So he is leaving Jerusalem for the last time before he enters at uh, the triumphal entry. So let's read these verses together. John chapter 10, verse 22, and then we'll dive in and see how far we can get this morning. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said to you, you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Father, please be our guide this morning. Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We want to see Jesus. God, I pray specifically for anybody in this room that, that wrestles with knowing that you love them. God, I pray this morning they would see the love that the Father has for them, the love that the Son has for them, and the eternality of that love, the security, the preservation of their souls in the love of God. Father, encourage us this morning. Give us courage and confidence as we stare at who you are embolden us give us greater faith to go out for the cause of christ we pray in the name of our savior amen so for our time this morning jesus is going to be asked a question by the jews and he's going to give an answer so point number one the jews are going to give a question they're going to ask a question and point number two jesus is going to answer that question the answer is incredibly incredibly deep 
So let's start in verse 22 with the question. The timing, John gives us the timing. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. This is not a feast that was commanded in the Old Testament. This feast originated in the intertestamental period in those 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know this feast, this festival, but you know it by a different name. You don't typically call it the Feast of Dedication. You typically call it Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah. This is celebrated by uh, the Jewish people, even to this day, uh, late November, early December, depending on where it falls. It's typically in December. And it goes back to um, a, a commemoration, a remembrance uh, of a terrible battle that took place. There was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who went into Jerusalem, ransacked it in 167 B.C., uh, destroyed it, went into the temple. Uh, he was a pagan Gentile. And he took a pig and he slaughtered the pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies, desecrating the temple. The Jewish people obviously were terrified of this and were disgusted by it. And so they started a revolt, you know, by the, the name the Maccabean Revolt. That's Judas Maccabeus. He's the one who start the, started the revolt. And he overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes on the 25th of Kislev, which is when Hanukkah always is. Kislev is a month. It's a, it's a region of time that the Jews have on their calendar, and it fits between November and December. So back then, it was December 14th, 164 B.C., when Judas Maccabeus liberated Jerusalem from Antiochus Epiphanes. So we are to early December. Um, John writes, verse 23, that it's winter it's winter. Why does, he, why does he double that? He already gave us chronology here. He already told us it's Hanukkah, and Hanukkah always falls in the wintertime. So he already told us that. Why does he extend that to say it's winter? Well, I think he's giving us more chronology here. He's giving us more of an understanding of time. But I think, he's also, I think there's a little bit of a, of a play here. As the sun goes down on the Savior's ministry... Um, the days are getting shorter, so to speak. Um, it's cold. The, the, the atmosphere around the Savior is, is getting colder. He's going to die in three months. If it's December and he's going to die on April 3rd, 33 AD, we are very close to his death. Jesus is walking in the portico of Solomon because it's winter, because it's cold. This would be, uh, there's an overhang on the eastern side of the temple um, this was uh, built, it's erroneously called Solomon's portico. Solomon didn't build this, Herod built this. Um, but it is standing on the wall that Solomon built um, for the temple, on the temple mount. So they called this Solomon's portico. It's a little porch, it's an overhang. So Jesus is under there. And the Jews come, verse 24, and they gather around him. They encompass him. Now, we know that John, when... Normally, when he uses that word Jews, he's typically referring to religious Jews, the leaders of the Jewish people, religiously speaking. So they're hostile to him. Some people see these Jews as not being hostile. I believe that they are. And I think that the first clue that we have, not only with the usage of the word Jews, as John always uses it in his gospel, but the word gathered around him, they encompass him. They don't want to let him go. They want him to answer their question, and once he answers it in the way that they think he's going to answer it, they're going to pounce on him. So what's their question? 
They say to him, verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you remember, go back in John chapter 10. Um, Jesus uses a figure of speech. John chapter 10, verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they didn't understand what these things were, which he'd been saying. They didn't get it. It's kind of a parable of sorts that we called it. It's a figure of speech. So they say, we're done with figures of speech. Tell us plainly. We don't want you to hide behind a shepherd analogy. They understood it, but they say, we want you to tell us plainly. Now, why are they saying that? Do they truly not understand who Jesus has claimed to be? The answer is no. They obviously understand who Jesus claims to be. Back in chapter 5, verse 18, and back in chapter 8, verse 58 and 59, they pick up stones to stone him clearly because they think he's the Messiah and he claims to be the Messiah. If he claims to be the Messiah and they don't believe that he truly is, they think that he's blaspheming. They want him dead. So this is not a genuine question. We want to know who you are. Tell us plainly. What they're asking him to do is to proclaim with clear words, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And once he says that, They've got guards waiting in the wings. They've encompassed him. They've circled him so he can't get out, and they're going to arrest him, attack him, and kill him. They want him dead, and all they want is for him to explicitly and clearly say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, so that they can say, everybody's heard it, he is blasphemed. That's all they want from him. They they want him to provide them with an adequate basis for their attack, their arrest of him, and ultimately their execution. That's their question. What's his answer? Verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. I, I told you. I already told you who I am, and I've told you plainly enough that, you've, that twice already my ministry picked up stones to kill me because you know who I'm claiming to be. I've already told you clearly, but you don't believe The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. We've talked about this before in John. Jesus is always giving words and works, words and works, words and works. And here he says, you have not believed the works that I've done that testify that the words that I'm saying to you are true. I've told you, but you don't believe. Why don't they believe? Many people today... Many people that I interact with will say, I don't really believe in God or the Bible because I don't, there's not enough evidence. There's not enough proof. Now, I want to encourage them with evidence, and I want to answer what their questions are about Christianity. I want to answer for them. But I know, turn back to John chapter 3. Jesus tells us why people do not believe in him. John chapter 3, verse 19 This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. People don't believe in Jesus, not because they don't have enough evidence or they don't have enough proof. They don't believe in Jesus because they love their sin. They love their darkness. And when Jesus comes and exposes their darkness, they want to get get away from me, hide themselves. In fact, let me prove it to you the other way. The, The Jews are saying, if you just give us more evidence, we'll believe in you. So biblically, we know, well, it's not a matter of a lack of evidence. It's not ignorance that leaves you unbelieving. 
It's a matter of the fact that you in your heart love your sin and not the Savior. You love the darkness and not the light. So let's, let's see what happens when Jesus gives them a sign. Let's see what happens when he gives them. John chapter 11, verse 53. Let's see proof that Jesus is the Son of God. If they want a sign, let's see Jesus give them a sign and see if they bow the knee to him as Savior. Verse 53 From that day on, that's the day that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. A dead guy has been brought out of a tomb, raised to newness of life. From that day on, they planned together to what? Kill him. So more evidence, more proof doesn't bring them to an understanding and a bowing of their knee and believing in Jesus. I've never, never gotten that verse. They see Jesus raise a dead man and they say, let's kill him. That doesn't make sense to me. The kindness of God on display, the love of God on display through Jesus Christ. And they say, we want him dead. We want him dead. That shows us what John Owen calls the sinfulness of sin. Sin is so wicked. It's so wicked that it it presents to God, I don't believe in you because you have not revealed yourself enough to me. Instead of presenting to God, I don't believe in you because I don't love you and I don't want to believe in you. Sin is very, very wicked. So they want proof. Jesus says, I've already given you evidence. I've given you proof. I've told you who I am many times. I've told you through the works. I've told you through the words. But he gives us, back in verse 26, another reason why they don't believe. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. We've talked about this verse before. You don't become a sheep because you believe. You believe in Christ because you are his sheep. So Jesus is saying, you're not listening to my voice because you're not my sheep. And your actions are proving that you're not my sheep. You have a father. Your father, back in John chapter 8, is the devil. You listen to his voice, but you don't listen to my voice. You're not of my sheep. Now, Some people instantly go, okay, hang on, time out. What about human responsibility here? Jesus is saying, you are not believing in me because you're not my sheep. Well, what do I have to do with that? God's picking his sheep beforehand, before the foundation of the world. He has a book, uh, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And there's names written in that book. And those names are his sheep. And if your name's not in there, you're not his sheep. So hang on a second. Fatalistically, we we tend to just jump to, well, I have no choice. I have no responsibility in the matter. I don't think that Jesus or John is meaning in this verse to take away your human responsibility at all. They don't mean to reduce the moral responsibility of humans. The statement doesn't excuse anyone. It indicts everyone. In fact, using John's gospel, go back to chapter 7, verse 17. Remember this, this phrase that we came to. Jesus says, John chapter 7, verse 17, If anyone is willing to do the will of God, then he'll know the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak for myself. Are you willing? You ask the Jews in this section of Scripture, are you willing? And they say, no, we're not willing until he gives us another proof. And he says, that's why you don't believe. And it's revealing that you're not my sheep. So if you are willing to believe, if you're willing to bow the knee, you'll understand. But since you're not willing, it's your problem. It's your fault. God sends unbelievers to hell because they chose to reject him. Not because he, before the foundation of the earth, said, oh, sorry, you're not going to be in heaven with me. 
This is not taking out any human responsibility whatsoever. It's just simply saying, you're not listening to my voice. You're not my sheep. As I call, you're not going to hear. You're not willing. Now, I know we talked about this a couple weeks ago. I know the Bible is filled with mysterious difficulties. You have Lamb's Book of Life. You have sovereignty. You have predestination. You have election. You have calling. They're clear. And you have moral responsibility. And they work together perfectly. How do they work together? We don't ultimately know. Deuteronomy 29, 29. There's mysterious things that belong to the Lord. But it's simple enough to understand these two things. It's clear enough to understand these two things are true. Turn to Acts chapter 2 really quickly. Acts chapter 2. Peter says, verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. So it was God's plan to kill Jesus, and you killed Jesus. Now, if, if I were to say that to anybody in our context, in our culture, we typically run to, whoa, whoa, whoa I'm not responsible then. If it was God's plan and, and God already knew, I get this question a lot. If God already knows, how do I have free will? You do. That's the bottom line. You do. God has to know because he's God. You're not a robot. You have free will. You get to choose. So Peter says, um, God planned it. You killed him. And, and if I were to say that to somebody today, their answer would be, well, then it's not my fault that Jesus died. It's God's fault that Jesus died. What do these people do? Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? We killed the son of God. They don't run to, whoa, 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 hang on. You're telling me it was God's plan all along? Then I'm off the hook. They know they're not off the hook. So there is absolutely a way where God's 100% sovereign, predestining, planning, ordaining, sovereignly choosing. And at the exact same time, we have 100% human responsibility and free will to choose whether we will bow the knee or not and obey him or not. They, they work together. So can I just plead with you, be content be content with the fact that no matter how smart you are, and I know we have brilliant people in this room, you're not as smart as God. <laughs> you don't have the mind of God. And human finite brains trying to figure out God's infinite mind, we will always fall short. We don't have brains big enough to understand how these two things work. So we have clarity in the scriptures that they do work, and we can leave the mystery to God. So Jesus says, you're not believing you're not my sheep. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. Verse 27, if you were my sheep, then you would have heard my voice. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. It's a beautiful progression here um, of, of salvation. They hear my voice. That's the calling of God. They hear my voice. I know them. That's the predestining of them. I have ordained that they would be mine. I know them. They're mine. They follow me. That's conversion. They turn. They repent. They follow me. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. They have been given eternal life, and it is secure. When Jesus says, verse 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Said in the positive and the negative, I give them eternal life. So when do you die if you have eternal life? You never do. 
So positively, you have been given eternal life. Negatively, no one can snatch you out of the hand of God. No, it's impossible. Nobody can take you out of the hand of God. No one will ever perish. I give you eternal life, and of course you're never going to perish because I've given you eternal life. Nothing can take you out of my hand. Not the wolf in verse, chapter, in verse 12. Not the thief or the robber in verses 1 and 8 of chapter 10. Nobody can take you away. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This, this brings up a very important question. This is a question, my, my fear as we start talking about these questions, is when you hear the question, you just kind of assign it to, well, that's theology, that's doctrine, and that doesn't really matter, and it's, we kind of leave it abstract. I want to prove to you today that it does matter for a lot of different reasons. Have you ever asked the question or heard the question, can you lose your salvation? Maybe there's something that I've done that nullifies the grace that God gave to me. Maybe there's something that, that I am. Maybe there's a way that I live my life. Maybe there's some, something that I've done or something that somebody else has done to me that nullifies the eternal life that's been given. If it's a gift from him, is there any way that I can receive it and then reject it and throw it away? I think this verse is a very clear verse that says no. There's no way that you can ever be taken out of the hand of God. There's no way you can ever lose your eternal life. There's no way you can ever die in the eternality of your life. I think this is one of the clearest texts in the Bible on this question on this topic, but I just want to, about 10 minutes, I just want to go through some of the other texts. Go to Jude chapter 1, verse 1. We don't, we don't really have a, a second chapter in Jude, so it's just Jude 1. Let's ask the Bible, can you lose your salvation? Can you forfeit eternal life? Jude chapter 1, verse 1. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Do you guys ever just run through the greetings in the, in the epistles? It's like, well, it's, you know, dear so-and-so, this is so-and-so, let's move on to the body of the text, right? Just like Paul, an apostle, uh, to the deacons, to the elders, here I go. You know, just there's there's kind of a sense of we can just skip the greeting. Um, it's like when I I flew to New Mexico this summer, and um, you, you guys who have flown, you have those poor flight attendants that always give you their spiel at the beginning, right? And no one's listening to them. If the if the plane were ever to have a, a problem, she would just be up front saying, "I told you so," and you didn't listen, right? I told you everything, and you're just on your iPad, on your iPhone. We, we tend to do that with greetings. Just We kind of sit down. We're going to hunker down into this text, and as we sit down, getting ready to hunker down, we just kind of go through the greeting. Who cares? But verse 1 is massively important. To those who are the called. Called. This is one of the most often used terms to describe a believer in the New Testament. 
This word called is used in the New Testament almost more than any other reference to a believer. You've been called. You've been called. If you are a Christian, this word called is why you are a Christian. Because God called you to himself. If you're a Christian, you are called. And you're a Christian because you were called. This isn't just the the universal call to everybody in the world. This is the effectual call to a believer. You listen to the voice of the shepherd and you come. You're called by God. You're loved in God the Father. You're called by him because you're loved by him. And you're kept for Jesus. John will tell us you're kept by him and by the Father. Jude tells us the Father keeps you for his Son. You're kept, you're preserved, you're secure. You ever ever wonder, you ever have doubts, does God still love me? I know God did love me at the cross, and I know he loved me when I repented of my sins and I turned to him, but does he still love me when he sees how much of a failure I am? When I turn my back on him time and time again, falling headlong into sin, the same old sin over and over, does he still love me? This verse says, you're called, you're loved, and you're kept. Nothing will change that. Nothing will ever change that. One Puritan author says it this way, the greatest sorrow, the greatest burden, and the greatest unkindness that you can do for God. What is it? That's a, that's a great opening sentence. When I'm reading the Puritans and I read, here's the greatest burden, sorrow, and unkindness that you can offer to God. I want to know what that is. I want to know what is the biggest form of a slap in the face of God spitting in his face. The Puritan says, the greatest sorrow, the greatest burden, and the greatest unkindness that you can give to God is to doubt his love for you. It's as if you, you say in your doubt, I don't know if you love me. And he's saying, what more would you have me do? I crushed my son. I did the hardest thing. Romans eight thirty two. I gave you my son. I didn't spare my only son, but I gave him to you. I love you. What more would you have me do? To prove my love for you. Typically, if we're honest, the answer is uh, get rid of the trial, right? Uh, Do you really love me because I'm going through a really hard time right now? And if you would just get rid of the trial. Remember the father spoke to the son. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased by him. Twice he said that. Baptism, transfiguration. My beloved son, I love you. And when Jesus says, hey, is there another way? Can we get rid of this cup and can we do this another way? God says, no. Is that because he doesn't love his son? No, he clearly loves his son. He says, you're going to go through that trial. You're going to go through that tempest. You're going to go through that storm, not in spite of my love, but because of my love. Because of my love for you. So, if you're called, if you're loved, and if you're kept... My question is, where does your certainty that God loves you lie? Where does does your certainty, if I were to ask you, how can you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're loved by God? That's why we're going through the book, The Cross-Centered Life. This is why we struggle. This is why we tend to have condemnation. We have condemnation in our lives because of this very point. We look and we see, I think God loves me because of what I can do. 
Somehow he's proud of me or somehow he loves me because I'm, I'm walking in righteousness. I'm walking in holiness. And so he loves me more. But when I sin, he loves me less. That's when we typically doubt. That's when we struggle. Do, do you love me, God? If your certainty over the love of God lies within you, then you have great reason to question whether God loves you or not. You have great, if your certainty over the love of God lies in you, and I know most, if not all of you, and you are all very lovely people, I'd love to have dinner with all of you, but if your certainty lies in what you can offer God, then you're always going to wonder, do you love me? You're always going to wonder that. Because as you look at your sinful depravity, as you look at your sinfulness, you're going to say, how could you love me? And that's a great place to be. God doesn't love you ultimately because of you and what you can offer. This goes against everything that we know in our society and in our culture. You get picked for a baseball team. Who's going to get picked last for that baseball team? The last person to get picked is the worst person. Yeah, just go sit on the bench or go into the outfield and hopefully a ball doesn't get hit to you. Um, you get picked uh, to, to work a job. And when you get picked, the person who doesn't get picked, who interviewed for that job, didn't get picked because they're not as good as you are. Our whole world revolves around you doing things to earn what you receive. So we tend to come to God that way, right? We tend to come to God saying, God, I know you love me, but you love me because of who I am. You picked me to be on your team and in your family because I only hit home runs. So when you get up and spiritually speaking, you strike out, three strikes, you're out. You go, well, maybe I'm not loved because I thought you picked me because I'm so awesome. And now I've failed. If you look within for your certainty, your confidence, your assurance that God loves you, you will struggle with doubt. So where should we look? Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Where are we supposed to look then? If it's not within, where do we look? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself, himself, sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is that supposed to happen? I'm going to be blameless when Jesus comes back? Paul says it's because the God of peace is doing that. He's sanctifying you. He's turning your heart towards him. And if you say, well, is there ever going to be a time where I quit on Jesus? Verse 24, faithful is he who calls you and he will bring it to pass. If he called you and you heard his voice and you're one of his sheep, you're kept and he will bring it to pass. There's no way he will lose you. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, you know that he who began the good work and you will be faithful to complete it. It's going to be completed. Romans chapter 8 verse 28, go there really quickly. Romans chapter 8 verse 28, again, you know this section of scripture. But I want you to see the connection here. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who, who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So called, elected. How do we know that it will always work out for our good as believers? We know it, verse 29, because 
Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. How do we know that God's going to work all things together for our good? How do we know it? We know it because of God's sovereignty and salvation. Verse 29, because he foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, and he's going to glorify you. It's as good as done. You're going to get to heaven. Even though we aren't glorified yet, Paul says it's as good as done. You are glorified in the mind of God because he called you, he chose you, he saved you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, your life is hidden in Christ. If you've died to your sin, your life is hidden in Christ. So who can snatch you away when you are inside of Jesus Christ? Nobody can. Turn back to John. Just two passages in John. And we'll finish this out. John chapter 6, verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but I raise it up on the last day. So can a sheep ever be lost? Can a believer ever lose their salvation and walk away from the flock? He says, I will never lose one of them. I will never lose one of them. John chapter 17. Uh, You don't have to turn there. Just write it down. John chapter 17, verse 12. Jesus is praying. It's the, the upper room discourse, the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, Father, you have given me sheep. I've taken care of them. I've guarded them. I've kept them secure. And now I'm going to die. And since I'm going to die, there's going to be a moment when I can't protect them and keep them secure because I'm going to be killed. So, Father, I give them back to you. You secure them and then give them back to me and we'll secure them together when I rise from the dead. So Jesus knows my job is to purchase my sheep, secure my sheep, and I'll never lose one of them. I'll never lose one. Jesus' nailed hands, his nail-pierced hands, Hold you. And if that isn't enough, turn back to chapter 10. If that isn't enough, verse 29, my father, chapter 10, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. So Jesus holds you in his nail pierced hands, and the father holds you in his eternal, omnipotent, sovereignly powerful hands. That's why Jesus says nobody's more powerful than he is. Do you think that you can be snatched out of his hands? Well, if you're more powerful than him, you can be. Who's more powerful than God? Jesus says no one's able to do that because no one's greater than him. The Son and the Father. Know this this morning, believer. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the eternal Father that we sang about, hold you together in their hands. You are doubly safe. I mean, it's enough to say that the Father holds you and nobody can snatch you out of his hand. And Jesus says, I've got you too. You are doubly safe in the hands of God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit's doing the work to bring you safely home. The ultimate security of your salvation does not rest in your hands. If you believe it does, This is why we we wrestle with this question. Can I lose my salvation? That question comes from somebody who is staring at themselves as the security for their salvation. I will be secure as long as I keep myself in Christ. Nope, prone to wander, prone to leave. God's going to bring you back. 
God's going to keep you safe. So if you look internally for security of your salvation, then you have great reason to doubt. But the ultimate security of Jesus' sheep rests with the good shepherd holding you, not you holding him. When, when we walk anywhere as a family, I typically grab my son's hand and Chelsea grabs my wife's hand and we kind of push little Tyler, doesn't grab anybody's hand yet. And I hold on to Ethan's hand. Uh, I keep him safe. Now, we're both holding each other's hands, right? But any, any of you who have held on to the hand of a two-year-old know that they're not doing much holding. In fact, their hand's pretty much like this, and they're just moving it constantly. And you're, you kind of start moving slowly down the hand and grab onto the elbow and start grab, just move the head along. You know, it's just, there's no way they're holding. If their safety in, let's say, a parking lot, if their safety depended on their grip to your hand, they're going to be run over. There's no way they stay safe. Because as they start walking, oh, look, a bird. Oh, look. A car. Oh, look. And they will start wandering. Their safety in a parking lot rests on your hand, not letting them go. So you're both holding hands, but they're not holding the same way that you're holding them. It's the exact same way that the father holds your hand. You are his son. You are his daughter. And if you look to your grip on him as your assurance of salvation, you have reason to doubt. Because you're going to look around, sin, 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 and start loosening your grip. And as you loosen your grip on him, every second that you loosen your grip, every day that you loosen your grip, his grip stays and gets stronger and stronger. And he says, I'm never letting you go. Richard Sibbs says that. He's a Puritan. He's an old dead guy who apparently had kids wandering away too. He said, as we say of the mother and the child, both are holding hands, but the safety of the child is that the mother holds his. Your safety, your security is that Jesus holds you. He holds you fast. Verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The Jews wanted him to plainly tell them who he was. Plainly tell us you're the Messiah. And he plainly tells them that and much more. You wanted more than just me telling you who I am? Let me tell you what I do. And as I tell you what I do, you'll know who I am. Because I do the exact same thing that the Father does. I keep, I preserve, I secure. And the Father keeps, preserves, and secures his sheep. Now, a lot of people say, well, maybe he's just saying I and the Father are one in what we do and and how we do it. Not truly equal. But the Jews, verse 31, are going to pick up stones to stone him. And Jesus is not going to say, whoa, you misunderstood what I said. I don't mean that we're truly God together. I mean that he's God and that I'm just his messenger and we kind of do the same things. No, he says, no, you you understood it perfectly. I am God. John chapter 1, verse 1, you know it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God is with God. Jesus is God. Colossians 2.9, the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. The fullness of what it means to be God dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, made himself nothing. He was equal to God. He is equal to God. There's many more verses that we're going to look at next week about his equality with God. But this is where I want to end this morning. So many times, theology and doctrine just stay abstract. 
You start talking about theological ideas and they just stay abstract. I think that's the reason why people typically say, I hate theology, I hate doctrine. I don't want to talk about those things. Because typically when we're talking about those things, they just stay abstract. They don't connect to the so what. And as they don't connect to the so what, we just argue about something that nobody really cares about. And it doesn't do anything. I just want to plead with you. I want to plead with our church. Don't be afraid of theology. Don't be afraid of doctrine. Don't look down on it. Here's what you should be afraid of. You should be afraid of disconnecting your theology with your life. Disconnecting the doctrine that you believe with your life. Now, the reason I say this is because this section of Scripture, when Jesus answers a very deep theological question, can you lose your salvation? Jesus answers that. But the only reason he's talking about that is to prove that he's God. So when he says, I keep my sheep secure, God keeps his sheep secure, so we're one, we do the same thing, we're one in essence, he gets that oneness, he proves that he is God based on a very deep and rich theological concept. So your eternal security is a reason to believe that Jesus is God. And Jesus being God is reason to believe that you will never, ever lose your salvation. We saw it in Romans chapter 8. You know God's going to work all things together for your good. How do you know that? Because, 29, he predestined you. So predestination has, as a foundation of your life, contentment, peace in the midst of trials. If you understand you've been called and chosen, and you bring your theology and your doctrine, and you infuse your life with that theology and doctrine, it'll work in your life. So if you don't have a so what to a theological concept, just shelve it. Don't argue about it, because you haven't made the connection to what the theology is supposed to produce in your life. Work hard to produce theological understanding, doctrinal understanding from the Word of God that makes a difference in your life. There are no irrelevant biblical truths about Jesus. All theology is incredibly relevant to waking up with joy in the morning. I wake up in the morning knowing if I'm going to stay saved today, it's only because of God. If I'm going to stay saved because of me, I probably lost my salvation in my sleep. But if I'm going to stay saved when I wake up in the morning and with confidence go out into the world and say to live is Christ and to die is gain, it's only because he's chosen me. So who do you believe Jesus is? And how do you believe you will stay saved? Those answers to those questions go together. Who do you believe Jesus is? And how do you believe you will stay saved? Jesus answers both of them in this text and thus says, I am God. We're going to look at the reaction, his response, and we'll dive further into his deity next week. But for this morning, can I just plead with us to bow the knee to what we know in Scripture? Don't run away from doctrine. Don't run away from theological concepts that seem very, very difficult to grasp. Press into them and let them change your life. Always ask, so what? And let it motivate you to a greater love for Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for your son. Thank you for his amazing love for us. We need him. He is more amazing, more wonderful, more incomprehensible than we could possibly imagine. And so with what has been revealed to us today, we want to come And we want to say thank you. Thank you for your calling. Thank you for your love. Thank you for keeping us, as Jude 1 says. And thank you, as 
Jude 24 through 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He's the one who's going to present us blameless before the Father on that last day. God, now may we look at Jesus, fix our eyes on him, and not at ourselves for any form of assurance of salvation. May we stare at Jesus and be undone by his kind care for us. We pray in his name. Amen.